to the preaching and teaching ministry of Marion Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. We continue our sermon series on the life of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. And so we're going to be looking toward the end of Luke chapter 9. I will give you the exact reference here in just a moment. But I often like to start with a question to get you thinking along the lines of what God might want to speak to us about. My question or questions today are, have you ever had a question that you were afraid to ask? Have you ever had a question that you were afraid to ask? Chances are we probably all have, right? Why is that? Why is it that people have questions that they're afraid to ask? I mean, questions is one of the best ways for us to get information, for us to get answers, for us to find solutions, for us to learn things. Why is it that sometimes people have questions that they're afraid to ask? There could be any number of reasons. One of them, I think just has to do with that little bit, maybe for some a lot of it, of pride that we have, and we don't want people to think that we don't know what we're supposed to know. We don't want to come across as we're ignorant. We don't want people to say, you didn't know that. But I think some of the other reasons might be that we already know the answer, but we don't want to have it confirmed. Like, I already know what they're going to say. I already know what the answer is, but I really don't want somebody to confirm that for me. Or maybe we don't want to know the answer for some other reason. Like, we're afraid of what the consequences might be. Or if we actually have that knowledge given to us or confirmed to us, now we're going to be responsible to do something about it. Or maybe we kind of get an idea of what the answer is, but we don't want to hear it. You know, when you have somebody say, hey, how can I do better at such and such and such and such? You always kind of hesitate. Do they really want to know? Or are they just wanting to hear you say, oh, you're doing a great job. You know, so there's a couple of different reasons, a lot of different reasons why people might have questions they want to ask, but they're afraid to ask it. Now, the reason I started off that way is because in our story today, we are going to see a situation where the disciples have some questions, but they're afraid to ask Jesus. Now, before we go on and look at that, let me talk about another thing that fits in here, and that is, have you ever known someone who could have avoided a lot of trouble if they just would have asked the right questions? And sometimes you can see it coming on, can't you? You see them headed the wrong direction, and it's like, it's not my place to step in. Sometimes it is, but it's not my place to step in. It's not my place to say anything. If they would only get some advice, if they would only ask some questions, they could get some help and avoid a lot of trouble. And one of the things I think sometimes I think when I see that happening, I guess they're just going to have to learn the hard way. Have you ever said that about somebody's situation? I guess they're just going to have to learn the hard way. We often say that about our kids or our grandkids, right? Yeah. It's been said about us too, hasn't it? Well, we're going to see that in our story today. And that's why the title of the message today is Don't Be Afraid to Ask. Don't be afraid to ask. As I said, in this story, the disciples are afraid to ask. And they should have asked the questions they had because if they did... 
they wouldn't have had to learn some lessons the hard way. Because they ended up saying and doing things that were totally wrong and Jesus had to correct them. A couple of times Jesus had to rebuke them. Now, I just want to pause here for just a second to let you know, uh, we mentioned this last week also, some of you were here, some of you perhaps were not, and that is that his disciples, Jesus' disciples are people, just like you and I. We talk about us trying to be disciples, we're learners, we're followers of Jesus, if we have that relationship with him. But you know what? Just because you become a disciple, it doesn't make you perfect. And it doesn't mean you understand everything. All at once. It's just like a baby growing and maturing through childhood and uh, teenage years and adulthood. You know, we all continue to grow and learn and develop. And that's what it is like following Jesus. And that's the way it was like for Jesus' original disciples. And so even though Jesus' disciples made some wrong choices and some wrong decisions, they didn't ask some questions when they should have because they could have, you know, saved themselves some trouble. And they said and did the wrong things from time to time. Jesus never rejected them. He just says, okay, let's fix this and let's go on. And I'm pausing here. I'm camping on this a little bit because that's the same thing that's true for us. Every once in a while, and I can say that in the last month, I've probably had at least three or four conversations with different people who basically have kind of intimated, it's like, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, but yet it seems like I still make mistakes and I just, I'm not where I want to be. I'm not where I think I should be. And how do you deal with that? And it's like, welcome to real life. I mean, it should never be an excuse or a reason to sin or do things wrong or not do the best we can. But process. We all make mistakes. I make mistakes. In our Christian walk, the thing is, what are we doing with that? How do we respond to it when we know we have? And we see in the story of the disciples' lives, you know, they've been with Jesus by the time we get to this part of the story for quite a while. Maybe a year, maybe a year and a half, maybe even a little bit longer. It's hard to put a time frame in it. They're getting down to the last six months to a year of Jesus' life. There's this sense of they really should know better by now, but they still are doing, saying stupid stuff. But Jesus says, that's okay. I'll keep teaching them. I'll keep helping them. I'll keep steering them the right direction. And to be honest with you, there's some things they're not going to understand fully till after the crucifixion, until after the resurrection, until after the Holy Spirit comes upon them. But Jesus never gave up on them. And except for Judas... They kept on plugging along, kept trying to learn, kept trying to go and uh, grow, and God used them to turn their world upside down. And I, again, I'm, I'm spending some extra time here because I, this isn't <clears throat> the main number one or the only thing we want to talk about today, but may, this may be the, the main thing that some of you need to hear today because maybe you've been wrestling with your walk with God, and, and that's good to do. It's better to wrestle with your walk with God than to think you're perfect and everything's wonderful. But just know that God will never give up on you, even if you give up on Him. Keep coming back to Him. Keep learning. Keep growing. Keep picking yourself back up when you fall down. Keep confessing and repenting of your sin when you sin and go forward. Don't let the enemy keep you down. (laughs) Let's jump into the story, okay? 
So we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 43. We're just going to read it one section at a time as we talk about the various things God's laid on my heart here. But the background, you have to understand the background. I'm going to make it as quick as I can, okay, so we can jump into the story. Earlier in the chapter, Jesus had that episode where he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They gave him several responses. And he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. Jesus indicated that they were right, but they were wrong. They were right in that he's the Messiah, but they had the current understanding of who the Messiah was as a victorious king in the line of David who was going to come and conquer all of Israel's enemies at this time being Rome, set up God's kingdom and usher in a time of peace, prosperity, and God's blessing. And that's true of the Messiah, and Jesus is the Messiah, and he is going to do that. He hasn't done it yet, but he is coming back to do that. But there was another part to the Messiah the one who was going to come and who was going to suffer and he was going to serve and deliver people from their sins. But they were right in saying he was the Messiah, but they had the wrong idea of what the Messiah was going to do. And so immediately in that portion of scripture, Jesus tried to set them straight. It's in verse 22. He says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And he followed it up by saying, guys, listen, if you're going to follow me, you got to be willing to face the same kind of treatment. If you want to be part of my group, if you really want to be with me, you need to be willing to deny yourself, take up your cross. That means whatever the cost and follow me. They didn't understand that. How could that be true? The Messiah is going to set up God's kingdom. And so they just kind of ignored that part of what Jesus had to say. Shortly after that, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up onto the mountain to the event called the Transfiguration where all of Jesus' godly glory was revealed in his human form. He met with Elijah and Moses. They had this tremendous experience. God spoke from his glory and said, this is my son, listen to him. And they come down the mountain from this mountaintop experience to chaos. A man is there with his son who is deaf He is mute. He has all the symptoms of epilepsy. But the story makes it clear that this all is caused by an evil spirit. And with Jesus up on the mountain, his other disciples are trying to cast it out and they fail. Jesus comes down. He casts the demon out and everybody is in awe. They're amazed. And that's where we pick up the story. So if we look at our passage now, Luke chapter 9. In verse 43, it says, And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So this particular portion, we're going to break this up into four portions. This is all about the fact that the disciples are afraid to ask. 
Peter, James, and John saw Jesus' glory. They come down. Some Bible scholars say that because of the people's response and reaction to Jesus when he shows up, that maybe a little bit of that glory was still shining on his face, like when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the people could see the glory of God on his face because the people were just like, whoa, this is amazing, this is awesome. And then they see this tremendous miracle of how he delivers this boy of this demonic spirit and now he can hear, now he can talk, now he's not having seen anymore. In fact, when the demon goes out, it looks like he's dead and Jesus boom, raises him up, whether he actually died or just looked like it. But, you know, he's well again and the people are astonished. They're amazed. And I kind of get the feeling that there's a kind of this party atmosphere like, whoa, this is great. This guy's here, you know, he can meet all of our needs. This must be God's Messiah. And Jesus is like, oh, they're going the wrong direction i got to straighten them out. So he refers back to what he said before. This is the second time. And he's going he's to say it again in the next couple chapters of where the direction is going. He's trying to tell them, listen, this is God's power breaking into your lives, but it's not what you think. God's purposes, God's plans will be accomplished through sacrifice and even suffering. And so he tells them, he doesn't tell them the whole thing all over again, but he says here, um, ah, let me find it again here, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. He's reminding them again, it's not just all about the glory, it's not just all about the deliverance, it's not just all about the provision of needs, it's not just all about the feeding and the healing. God wants to do a deep work, but it's not going to be like you think. I'm going to have to suffer. And that's the way I choose to serve. In fact, Jesus is very, very uh, focused, very um, adamant here. The phrase that's used is unique. I don't think it's used anyplace else in the Bible. And he says, let these words sink into your ears. That's kind of like saying, pay attention. Really listen. Really get this. You got the wrong idea. Pay attention. Understand. As I related a moment ago, that's what God had said on the mountain. And Peter, James, and John, when God said, this is my son, listen to him. Listen to him. But we find out here, it says that the disciples didn't understand this saying. In fact, it even says it was concealed from them. And the Bible scholars debate back and forth who concealed it from was God. Because he had a purpose for them to be, you know, to not totally understand it. Or was it the enemy that was trying to conceal the truth from them? But the point is, no matter who or what was involved in concealing this from them, and they didn't understand, it seems to indicate that if they would have just asked Jesus to make it clear, Jesus could have cleared it up for them, at least to a degree. I believe that's why Luke mentions this here. It says, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Why were they afraid? We don't know. I I personally happen to think that probably one of the reasons is because they kind of get an idea, they understand what the answers would be, they don't want to hear it. They don't understand this concept of a suffering Messiah. I mean, the Messiah is supposed to be a victorious king warrior. This doesn't make any sense. And if we ask Jesus and he makes it clearer, 
like he did before, it may get into areas we don't really want to talk about. So we just won't ask him. But you know what? We face the same thing sometimes. There are things that we could really use some help with, but we're afraid to ask God. Now, a lot of things we're not afraid. Lord, heal me. Lord, help me. Lord, whatever. But when it comes down to, Lord, what am I supposed to do about this? Lord, what do I need to understand so I can make this situation right? Or I can make this situation come out? We hesitate to ask because we might be afraid of what God will tell us. Or maybe we already know what God would tell us. It's like, I'm just not going to bother to ask because maybe then I won't be responsible. But for each of these sections we're going to look at, there's some lessons that we can learn And I think the lesson we can learn from this is we don't need to be afraid to ask God about anything. Don't be afraid to ask God about anything. Anything you don't understand, anything you need to know. We ask him through prayer. We ask him through searching his word. Sometimes we ask him by talking to other believers who may have more wisdom and understanding and knowledge than we do in that particular area. Although, as I always say, If you're going to ask somebody else, make sure that whatever they share with you lines up with God's word. Okay? But don't be afraid to ask God about anything. In fact, he gives us a great promise in James 1.5 that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. So ask God. But then you need to do exactly what the disciples were exhorted to do over and over again. Listen. Listen to Jesus. And as we've mentioned the last couple of weeks in the Bible, when it says listen to him, it's going to be, it's understood that if you listen, you're going to do what he says. You're going to obey. You're going to carry it out. And again, sometimes that's why we don't ask. Why we don't listen. We don't want to hear it because then we become responsible. Don't be afraid to ask. Because when we don't ask, when we don't seek God's plan, we don't seek God's will, we don't seek God's way of living life, we think we avoid responsibility and we end up getting into all kinds of trouble that we could avoid, at least to some degree. So that's just a basic life principle. But we're going to look now into three specific areas where the disciples, because they weren't willing to ask, because they weren't willing to get more insight, they made mistakes. And we can learn some lessons from their mistakes because we will battle with the same things they were battling with. The first one, which is the second category, we see the disciples learn about humility and service. The disciples learn about humility and service. Let's look at verses 46 to 48. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Seems to indicate when you read this story in the other gospels that it's kind of as they're walking along the road and Jesus is either way ahead of them or behind them because they're trying to argue this out without him hearing them because they know he's not going to be happy with it. But Jesus knows all things, right? So an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child And put him by his side, and he said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So they're having this argument. 
And if you're familiar at all with the story of Jesus, and hopefully you'll be getting more and more familiar with it as you learn to know Jesus better and better, this is an argument and a discussion that kept coming up over and over and over again with the disciples. Again, the idea of the Messiah, the conquering king, setting up God's kingdom, and they're his inner circle, especially Peter, James, and John, but all 12 of them. And they've got to be wondering and dreaming about what position are they going to have in God's restored kingdom. Because God's restored kingdom is going to be all over the world. And they are arguing about who is the most important And it's not one of those arguments of, oh, you've got to be the most important one. Yeah, because you're such a great guy. No! It's, I'm the most important. We see over and over and over again in the Gospels, this is an area where they don't just get it wrong once, they get it wrong twice and again and again. They argue even in the upper room, before the Last Supper, they're arguing about who's the most important. Because... In their pride, in their self-centeredness, it's about position, it's about power, it's about authority. And Jesus says they need to learn about humility and service. You see, when Jesus gave that second prediction of what was going to happen, that he's going to be, you know, that he would be handed over into the hands of men, and the implication that all the other stuff he'd already told them, that he was going to be betrayed, the religious leaders, all that kind of stuff, he was going to be killed, he's going to die, but he'll raise again. If they would have asked him about that, he could have explained even more about how God's power is often manifested in sacrifice and in service. Not just getting all puffed up and proud and expecting God's power to just kind of whoosh right through you, you know? And you wield this great authority, but they didn't ask. And so Jesus has to teach him a lesson. In this case, he uses an object lesson, along with some words. It says he takes a child and he puts him by his side. Now, in our culture, we love children. And they love children then too. I don't want to imply that they didn't. And they're important to us. They're significant. We dote on them sometimes. Sometimes we dote on them too much, especially grandparents. But that's a whole other subject for another time. They did love their children in that day and age, in that culture. But in their culture, because infant mortality rates were so high and children really couldn't produce anything to their really rough lives, even though children were significant to them, They were in their culture in general, just thinking of children in general, considered the least important people there were. They contributed nothing. Until they grew up and they could do stuff in general, in the culture, children were not important. They were considered the least important. They were small, powerless, helpless, and they were insignificant. So Jesus wasn't just trying to make an appeal that, you know, guys... Children are so cute and wonderful, you should all work in children's ministry. He was saying, this is an example of what our world, what our culture thinks of someone who has no real practical value. They're small, they're helpless, they're insignificant at this point in their life. But you know what? If you will pay attention to people like that, If you accept people like that, if you will love people like that, if you will serve 
people like that, it's as if you're doing that for me. And not only for me, but you're doing it for God himself. The point he's trying to make is that everybody is important in God's eyes. Even and especially the people who aren't important in our eyes. That's the point he's trying to say. When he says here, for he who is least among you all is the one who is great. He's talking about the child. He says, this, this, this child is thought of as being the least, but he's great in God's kingdom. And the implication here is that if you really want to be great in God's kingdom, then you're not worried about position. You're not worried about power. You're not worried about authority. You're not worried about what other people might think about you, but you are willing to serve the least of these. That's what God's looking for. It's not the prideful position, but the service that Jesus commends and that God commends. Matthew shares a story you can read later in Matthew 25, 31 to 46. We're not going to read the whole thing. It's called the parable of the sheep and the goats. And Jesus is going to tell this parable six, 12 months from now when he's in Jerusalem in the last week of his life. And he talks about how at the end of time there will be a judgment before God like uh, a, a farmer separating the sheep from the goats and one will go on one side, one will go on the other, one will be commended, one will be condemned. And the ones who are condemned will be condemned because they did not reach out to people that were in need. They were not reach, they would not reach out to people and help those who were considered not important, those who were insignificant. He mentions specific people that are hungry and they're thirsty and they're naked and they're sick. They're in prison. And he says, you are all being rejected because you wouldn't do that. And he turns to the others and says, you are to be commended. You will be rewarded because you did reach out to the insignificant. You did reach out to the other people, to the people that others didn't want to reach out to. You did reach out to the hungry and, and, and feed them. You reached out to the, to the thirsty and gave them something to drink. You reached out to those who were sick and helped them. You reached out to those and visited those in prison and others that are in need. And it says that those people will turn and say, well, when did we do that? I, I don't remember. Because you said, you did it for me. And they'll say, well, I don't remember doing that for you. And it says that God will say, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You know, the lesson that he's trying to teach his disciples here, and I think the lesson that he would want to teach to us today is this, that the greatest way to serve Jesus is by humbly serving those around us, especially those rejected by society. I know it's kind of long. I tried to make it shorter, but that's that the greatest way to serve Jesus. The way to really be significant in God's kingdom is not to be a pastor. I mean, unless God calls you to be a pastor, that's, that's, that's neither here nor there. God calls some people to be pastors, some not. It's not to be an elder or a deacon, a deaconess, unless that's the role God calls you to do. It's not to do this, that, and the other just because of the title, the authority, the position, the power, but it's to serve others. In humility, not caring about getting the glory, not caring about getting the award, not caring about what other people think, but especially those who are rejected by 
society. And that should cause us to examine our own hearts. Do we long for position? Do we long for recognition, for people's adulation? We all like it. I mean, let's just be honest, right? We like it when people recognize us. We like it when people see that we do good things. We like it when we have authority and we're using it in the right way and people recognize that. And, and you know, I can tell you, I, I've said so many times, you guys are so encouraging to me as the pastor um, in so many different ways. Um, and, and that's not a bad thing. But when we live for that, when we do what we do just for that reason... Or we refuse to serve. We refuse to get involved. We refuse to do things for God's kingdom because people won't see me. I won't get the recognition I want. I won't. Then there's a problem. Another question we should wrestle with is, who do I struggle to accept? And who would I struggle to serve? I can tell you the best of us. Mike, you get ourselves to the places like, you know what? I'm going to follow Jesus' teaching. I'm going to serve. And there's certain people, it's a joy to serve. There's other people, it'd be like, this wouldn't be a joy to serve. But you know what? I'm going to do it for Jesus. But who are those that we would most wrestle with? I do not want to serve that person or that type of person or people in that type of situation. I believe God would like to do a work in our hearts so we'd be saying, Jesus, this may not be easy. It goes against the way I feel for whatever reason. But Jesus, I want to serve whoever you call me to serve. I don't care who knows it. I don't care if it's a position. I just want to serve you by serving others. The disciples needed to learn that. Another one, the disciples learn about acceptance and cooperation. The disciples learn about acceptance and cooperation. Verses 49 and 50, it says here, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. The disciples needed to learn about acceptance and cooperation. Now we have absolutely no information about this group of people. I mean, most of the stories about Jesus are all about Jesus and his disciples and his followers and whatever. But this indicates that there's somebody, some, some, you know, some, some, somebody out there who knows that Jesus has power and authority. The demons are cast out in his name. And apparently in the right attitude with the right desire to help people is casting out demons in Jesus's name and he being successful. And John says, man, we saw this guy do it, but he, he's not one of us. So we told him to stop. What's really ironic is that John is saying that they, he didn't say he did it himself specifically, but they put a stop to this guy from doing what they were unsuccessful at. Because they had just been unsuccessful at casting the demon out of that little boy. And they saw somebody else that was successful. And I can't help but wonder if maybe that was part of the reason why they told him to stop. It's like, well, if we can't do it, you can't do it either. I don't know. But the idea here is that there's kind of this exclusivity. It's like, well, we're with Jesus. And he wasn't really with Jesus. He's not part of our group. But Jesus' point here is that he's doing the work of God. And it's obvious he's doing it in the right way, with the right perspective, because Jesus isn't going to let something go on that shouldn't go on. He's doing it by the power and authority of Jesus, not claiming to be Jesus. And he's doing the work of God. 
And the disciples needed to learn that it wasn't just all about them. You see, all these problems they're having are really focused on themselves. Because they're focused on themselves. And they got to learn this because when this whole story is over, when Jesus' story of being on earth is over and he goes into heaven, it's going to take a lot of people to do God's work. A lot more than the twelve. And so the disciples needed to learn about acceptance and cooperation. And again, there's some lessons here that we can learn. Got a couple of them for this one. Number one, don't be jealous of others who are successful in ministry. Especially if it's in an area of ministry that you're in and you're not as successful. Can I tell you, I think everybody, every believer battles, but pastors battle this. You know, pastors are doing their best or whatever they're doing with their church. And then either on social media or at a minister's meeting or something else, they meet or know or talk to another pastor and their church is doing this, 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 this. And it's like, man, I'm trying so hard to do that. And it's just not happening. You know, and it gets very easy for the enemy to get in there and say, oh, man, they've got it going on and you don't. And there's a jealousy that arises. This is not confession time, I'm just saying, you know. But it does make you wonder, it's like, what what should I be doing differently or whatever? And, and you know, so I've, I've learned some lessons from this. You know, don't be jealous. You know, some other churches really just, woo, they're doing some great things and that isn't quite happening at our church or whatever. But you know what, there are things that are happening at our church that aren't happening at other people's church. And all we need to do is be focused on doing the best we can with what God has called us to do and leave the results in his hands because that's really the way it works. And if God allows some other church or some other person who's doing ministry to be more effective and more successful than he is you, there may be a reason. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't a place to look at your heart and say, Lord, is there something I should be doing different? Because maybe there is. Maybe your ministry is. your. When I say your ministry, I don't even mean an official position of ministry, but whatever you're trying to do for the Lord, you know, maybe there is a reason. In, in the case of the disciples, we talked about it last week. Why couldn't they cast the demon out? Had to do with the fact that they weren't praying as they should. They weren't, they weren't manifest or not uh, making use of the faith that they had. They learned from that. So we need to examine ourselves, but we need to not get jealous of people who are successful in ministry. A second lesson we learn from here is don't condemn sincere followers of Jesus who aren't part of your group. There have been times in the history of the church, and I'm sure it's still true, that there are certain religious groups or denominations or even churches that think that they're the only ones that are doing it right. The only ones that are really true and faithful to God. You know, we're an assembly of God church. We don't make a big deal of that. We don't make a big promotion. It's on our sign and all that kind of stuff. But we don't make a big, well, we're assemblies of God and we're not whatever, whatever, whatever. But one of the things that I always am willing to admit and say and say at membership class, you know, we're assemblies of God for a reason. We believe what they state as their statements of belief. We believe in their programs and how they run things, how they do things. We're a part of that. We like that. That's fine. But you know what? We're not the only Christian group in the world. We're not the only true Christian group in our community. I pray all the time for the other churches in Mariana Oaks, specifically in the surrounding area, all those that are truly Bible-believing and Bible-teaching and Bible-preaching. Because we're all in this together. That's why we try to do things together. We made an extra special effort to do that this year with our outdoor services, with the other four churches that wanted to join with us. We find that one of the greatest desires Jesus had for his followers that he showed in his last prayer in the upper room, John chapter 17, is he said, Lord, help my followers to stay in unity. 
We've allowed the enemy to split and splinter the church way too much. And there's not anything we can really do about the history, but there is something that we can do. And that is to not condemn sincere followers of Jesus who aren't part of our group. And the third lesson we can learn from this before we move on to the last one is don't condemn sincere followers of Jesus who don't do things your way. I mean, that's part of this thing here with John. It's like, he's not doing it our way because he's not traveling with us. He's not connected to you closer, Jesus. But you know what? We can fall into that same trap. If you've got a sincere follower of Jesus who's doing a work for Jesus, but they're not doing it the way you would do it. They're not doing it the way you think is the best way to do it or the right way to do it. Don't condemn them. Don't condemn them. You know, something I have to wrestle with sometimes is that because I'm me and because of my experience and my age and my study and everything, I do things the way I do them because I think it's the best way they should be done. I've also learned through the years that sometimes there's better ways. But because I feel that way, I know none of you ever wrestle with that. I know that none of you ever wrestle with, well, what I think is probably the best thing because that's what I think, right? But I've learned over the years to not look down on, condemn, or try to squash somebody else doing something effectively. If they're doing it according to God's word. Now, they're doing it, uh, you know, if they're promoting heresy or doing stuff that God said don't do. That's a whole different story. Don't condemn sincere followers of Jesus who don't do things your way. The last thing, I said four sections is the fourth one. The disciples learn about rejection and grace. The disciples learn about rejection and grace. Look at verse 51 through 56. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, this is talking about it's drawing near to the end of his life. He's going to be betrayed, tried, crucified, buried, and raised again, and then ascended. It's still six months a year out there, but things are building. Things are, are, are getting there, you know, and it, it, it's, it's time to really be focused. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem. The idea of setting your face is like, I'm determined, you know? And it's like he's had this meeting with Moses and Elijah, and it said they met specifically to talk about his departure, you know? The things are going to happen. And so Jesus is like, okay, I'm in the final stretch, all right? Still going to be six months, maybe a year. I'm in the final stretch. I am determined. I'm going to carry this through. I'm going to carry this out. That's the idea here. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. They're up in North Israel, Jerusalem's in South. It says, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Now you have to understand that the Samaritans, you may have heard this before, we're not going to dig deeply into it, but the Samaritans are a mixed breed. They're partially Jewish and partially pagan. And it goes back long hundreds of years, okay? And, and, and so the Samaritans and the Jews have a very active animosity, anger, and even hatred for each other. And when you went from Jerusalem to Galilee, you either had to go through Samaria or you had to go across the river and around about and add a couple days to your journey, and many people did that, okay? So anyway, Jesus is going from Galilee to Jerusalem. He has to go through Samaria. That's the way he chose to go. And it says he sent messengers ahead of him who entered and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. It's like, it's obvious whether something was said or whatever. He's headed to Jerusalem to try to do something for God. And we don't like people that do. And so we're not going to let him stay here. 
We're not going to help him along the way. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna be an obstacle to him. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. What are James and John talking about? They've got scriptural precedent for this, okay? I mean, Jesus had just met with Elijah. Elijah was the forerunner of Jesus. Uh, you know, the Bible says that John the Baptist kind of fulfilled that role of, you know, like Elijah, preparing the way for the Messiah. And, you know, there's a story about Elijah in, uh, where is it? It's in, um, you can read it later, Second Kings chapter 1, where a wicked king wanted to arrest Elijah. And Elijah's up on a hilltop. So the wicked king sends a man with, I think, 50 soldiers to basically arrest Elijah. And the man comes in great pride and says, you're going to come with me. And Elijah says, no, I'm not. God zapped him. God zapped him. King sends a second group of men. Same approach. You're to come with me. He said, no, I'm not. There, God zapped him. King sends a third group. And the man comes and says, Elijah, I've got respect for you as a man of God. I mean, I'm paraphrasing here. Do you think you could come with me? The king wants to talk to you. No, I just say, sure, I'll come with you. So anyway, there's that story in the Old Testament. It's kind of a different story. You can read it, dig deeply. But James and John are saying, you know, those people were coming and they were causing problems for Elijah. And Elijah just said, God zap them and God zapped them. So let's do it. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's different circumstances, everything. But Jesus says, that's not the way we do things. Again, I'm paraphrasing what this thing is saying. That's not the way we do things. And what's really interesting is that earlier in chapter 9, Jesus had already sent these 12 disciples out to minister, two by two. You may remember that. And when he sent them out, he says, listen, if you go someplace and they reject you, don't cause any problems. Just leave. You know, shake the dust off your feet. That was kind of a Jewish thing saying, well, you've rejected us, so we're just leaving you in God's hands. You know? They'd already experienced that. They'd already received teaching on how you deal with people that reject you. But now they're all caught up in this fervor of Jesus is the Messiah. These people want to reject God's king. We're going to make them pay. And Jesus says, that's not the way we do things. Again, if they had just asked Jesus the questions about what he's talking about, and he could say, listen, we're here to serve. We're here to love people. We want to reach people. But they didn't. In verse 55, in some translations, it has a little bit extra there because there's some extra sentences or another sentence that's in some, some um, manuscripts, and I want to read that to you. Some manuscripts say in verse 55, but he turned and rebuked them and he said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of for the son of man came not to destroy people's lives, but to save them. They went on to another village and, you know, Luke is the one who's so well known to say that the son of man came to seek and save the lost. He came to seek and save the lost. So there's two lessons I want us to learn from this today. This has been more of a teaching time today. I hope you're learning the lessons. I hope God's speaking to your heart about how they might apply to you. But the first lesson is this, is those who reject us should be the special objects of our love. Rather than our hatred, rather than our prayers of God, get them. God, they deserve judgment. The people who reject us should be the special objects of our love. Jesus taught on this in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 28. He said, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. 
Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. He says, we're going to do things different. Why? And that's the second and the last lesson I'll give you. Why? Because those who reject us are not our enemies, they're our mission field. Those who reject us are not our enemies. They may see us, see themselves as our enemies, but they're not to be our enemies, they're our mission field. It goes all the way back, and it's illustrated by one of the most famously known verses in the entire Bible, and the one that follows, John three sixteen and 17, where Jesus said... For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. So we get ready to wrap this up. I want to refer back to something that I had said last week when I was talking about um, godly frustration and The frustration that comes when people come against us as believers and the frustration, a good frustration we should have when there's such a battle in our culture against righteousness and against godliness and against a lifestyle that God commends people involved in lifestyles and habits and in all kinds of stuff that God says that is not right, that is sin And that rather than get angry and rather than be ugly, that we should love Because they're not our enemies. They're our mission field. And they're not going to be won over by anger and hate. They'll only be won over by love. A lot of lessons in this passage. Again, this has been a sort of a different sort of sermon. I noticed that when I put it all together. But I want to read one last passage of scripture to you and we're going to wrap this all up. And this whole thing, all these lessons and all this stuff the disciples didn't get and they had to learn the hard way, but they did learn it, are summed up in something Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 11. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul said Jesus was God. But he didn't just hold his status as God as something to be held onto, but instead kind of put that to the side to become a man to suffer and to serve so we could be saved. And we need to follow his example. We need to be willing to put ourselves and our ego and our pride aside and to serve Jesus by serving others, especially those who are considered the least. 
especially those that other people want to reject, ignore, especially those who reject us, we're going to serve them in love. And I just pray that God will help me to do that. And I pray that God will help you to do that. Jesus came to do that so we could be saved from our sins. And if you're here today or you're watching online and you need a Savior, I encourage you to cry out to Him today and ask Him to forgive you of your sins. Those sins that provide a barrier between you and God will separate you from God for all eternity unless you put your trust in Jesus. I encourage you to ask Him to forgive you based on what He's done on the cross and surrender your life to Him. But I challenge the rest of us to follow Jesus' example. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to end as we many times do, but we haven't much recently. I'm going to invite our three elders to come, Pastor Jan to come. If you're part of the prayer team and you want to come, worship team is going to lead us in a song. But if you need prayer for anything, I mean, this, this message has got a lot of lessons in it. You're going to have to take it home. You're going to have to chew on it. You're going to have to meditate on it and say, God, how does this apply to me? And begin to live it out. But apart from that, if you have any need or you want us to join with you to pray for somebody else that has a need that you care about, Please come, we'll do that. And then in just a couple of moments, one of our pastoral staff will come back and close in prayer. Father, we thank you, oh God, for the mighty privilege we have to serve you. We thank you for the awesome privilege we have to come to your house. Oh God, for the privilege we have to give back to you of our praise, of our finances, of our blessings, oh God. We thank you for the many blessings you've bestowed upon us. God, I pray your blessings on your people as they walk out of here today. May they walk out of here with their heads held high, knowing they are sons and daughters of the one true king. May we be a blessing, God, to every person we come in contact with this week. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Hallelujah. We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org. 